according to his power that is at work within us so hello everyone i'm jeremy lancaster and jerome and i are here today with you and, and today as we talk about episode three of season one we want to talk to you about uh, cranes today you think about headline news and all the devastating events that have occurred involving crane safety cranes are headline news the consequences that happen with cranes in particular construction type cranes which will be our focus today loss can be high uh, injuries one of the events that we're going to talk about today actually involves a uh, fatality so if you're out there listening and, and you use cranes you use construction cranes mobile cranes this podcast will give you some great tips some lessons learned experiences we've also got a great guest that we're going to introduce here in just a moment that has uh, I believe 40 plus years of experience around this. So uh, stay tuned with us as we talk together for the next 30 minutes or so. And the first headline that I want to talk about, uh, about one of the events that we'll dive into was at uh, a construction site, uh, Amazon construction site that involved uh, a crane uh, collapse, the headline discuss. The second one is related to a crane that toppled over in Malibu, which was out in California, that is associated with an electrical line event. So we're going to talk about the hazards of working around cranes and electrical lines. And the third one, which probably everyone is the most familiar with, again, all these happened this year in the United States. I don't think I mentioned that they were actually in the U.S. This third one was in New York uh, City with a Derek crane that uh, caught fire and fell as a tower crane uh, excuse me tower crane thank you jerome that uh, fell so we're, we're gonna uh, slice and dice those three events talk a little bit more about those and today we've got doug so doug welcome thank you thank you for coming in and uh, joining us today and doug is one of our uh, crane and rigging experts that's uh, a great asset to us with spear and and lancaster and we're going to talk about some of Doug's experiences and tie them to these three particular uh, events. So before we do that, uh, Doug, you want to give a little bit of background around how us three know each other? And Jerome may want to chime in some and some of your work experiences with uh, construction cranes and mobile crane safety. Well, thank you, for, uh, Jerome and Jeremy, for inviting me here today. We have, I guess, our experiences and our past, we go way back. Uh, I think I met up with Jerome back in around 1990. Uh, we were all working for Chicago Bridge and Iron, or CBI at the time. Uh, Jeremy, being a little bit younger, came in a little bit later on, but we, we all uh, have ties to CBI. We all work there. Uh, I retired from there in 2012. Uh, and uh, Jerome and Jeremy uh, had their stint with CBI and went on to bigger and better things. So we, we go way back. Uh, we're uh, kind of family-oriented. We all uh, consider ourselves being part of a family, and so it makes it uh, really uh, a great asset to be uh, working together. And we all share a uh, 
a real great faith in the Lord Jesus. And so that helps us to even be better at uh, what we're doing. Now, um, Doug, can you explain a little bit about what you did for CBI? Well, when I first began working for CBI, I was a, a crane operator, derrick operator, heavy equipment operator, uh, working on different projects. Uh, I ran uh, the large uh, mobile cranes, also the derricks and things of, uh, that we needed to do to move the uh, materials around on the job site. Uh, I had prior experience before I went to work for CBI uh, I actually was a member of the Operating Engineers Local 450, uh, where I served my time as an apprentice and uh, began operating all sorts of uh, heavy equipment, mobile cranes, doing uh, rigging and things like that. So that's kind of where I uh, got my start. If you don't mind me asking, Doug, when, because uh, uh, I am going to ask it, but how, how old were you when you first your first certification or your first training when you first operated a, a crane on a job site? How old, uh, how old were you? Uh, I was probably, when I went into the operating engineers local, I was probably around uh, 20 or 21 years old. Okay. But I had a lot of experience all the way through because my dad uh, actually had a small construction uh, company. And uh, so we did a lot of it, operating of equipment, uh, you know, different types. So I had a kind of a solid background before I ever got started, uh, but you still had to go through the apprenticeship program. You had to still do the training and the processes, even though you may have had a vast amount of experience and knowledge already. And at some point, um, it was in the early 90s. I don't know exactly when. I know we met in the early 90s. So. Um, CBI moved you from out in the field from a crane operator into there as a regional safety crane specialist, right? That, that is correct. Uh, CBI was kind of on the cutting edge of crane safety uh, way back before that was a norm for our, for most companies. And they realized that they needed someone with some uh, more knowledge in the practical use and the practicalities of cranes and how cranes were supposed to be used. And then they wanted to develop a program that we would be able to teach the safety aspects of using cranes and derricks. So they asked me if I would uh, uh, want to come on board and join the safety department and start developing and working with uh, other groups within our company to develop a uh, crane training program so we could go around and actually make sure that the operators were trained and qualified to operate the cranes. Uh, that was, it, I use qualified because that was way before the days of certification. Right, right. That didn't come so much later, and we're going to get into that a little bit. And I, I think that's the first time I met you, actually, is at the uh, mobile crane um, instructor's course, um, a week-long course. And, then, and Doug was sitting up front and answering all these questions that we had, and then we said, well, we're thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> and then, and then we, since then, we became um, close friends. And so and after he retired, he left CBI and went to work for another company, and then he retired, and, he, and I'm glad that he came, came on board with me after he retired from um, CBI and, and the other company he was with. 
So let's jump into these three incidents and see where the conversation takes us. And again, for the for the listeners, we've we've picked three incidents that have happened in the United States. We've uh, there's video clips and some narrative behind each of these, but we've also got some pictures that we've printed out and provided for Doug. So we're going to quiz quiz you first, Doug, a little bit on what do you see, um, knowing that we don't have all the information with each of these events. The first one, as I mentioned, is a, a crane collapse at an Amazon construction site. So just with the picture that I've handed you, Doug, and why don't you describe to the listeners what, what type of crane do you see if you were to arrive on that site? What are some of the first questions that you would ask? Um, what type of crane? What, what does it look like that you, uh, from the picture that you've been given with this first event that happened? Okay, what, I, what I'm looking at first is an aerial view which shows the, the entire crane. Uh, it is a actually a conventional, what we call a conventional uh, mobile crane. Uh, the thing that we call it conventional, it is just a regular lattice boom crane. It has its own tracks, which means it is a mobile crane because it is able to move around the job site. And the crane, it appears to have been configured with a luffing jib attachment. A luffing jib attachment allows the uh, material to be placed at a greater distance. It's typically, uh, with this type of crane or this size of crane, it's usually lightweight material uh, because of when we talk about uh, stabilities of cranes, we have to understand about radiuses and the distances from the center of gravity and the center of rotation of the crane. So uh, this allows them to be able to set loads at, at greater distance than they could with a regular conventional crane because the luffer jib is much lighter than a the regular boom on the crane. Uh, but the failure, just looking at the photographs, it was not a structural failure in sense, because you typically think of a structural failure as something that you have actually have such a great load on the crane that it actually caused a failure. But this is also considered a constructural failure because something structurally failed to cause the boom to fall. Um, from the information that uh, I see, they were hanging or setting small uh, columns which were obviously not heavy enough to cause this type of damage. So it leads me to think that there was some type of failure in the suspension system that held the jib, held the boom up because the main boom and the jib failed. So uh, it could have been from a, uh, uh, a maintenance issue that uh, was not identified or, or found during the inspection, or it could have been a failure of when the, the crane was assembled and put together, something was not uh, done correctly. Doug, you talked about failure types through your conversation, so why don't you teach the audience again a little bit more around the the buckets, if you will, of what you've seen or traditionally of failure types of mobile cranes. You talked about structural and... Okay, uh, yeah, thank you. The two typical ways cranes fail are either structural failures or tipping failures. 
Uh, structural failures means that something broke. There was something that was designed to withstand a certain amount of load actually gave way, failed. This could have been caused from, again, lack of inspection, uh, improper use of it in the past that could have damaged something, uh, different things like that, or it could have been from some point in time, it could have been overloaded and caused a crack or something to occur in one of the structural members. Well, some of the loading charts are based on structural limitations as opposed to tipping limitations as well. So like a high angle and you overload it, over, load over its rated capacity, then that can cause a structural failure. Absolutely, yeah. Just about all cranes that I'm aware of have basically structural and tipping ranges because once you get to a certain uh, radius, then the likelihood of anything breaking or failing is uh, very uh, minute. It is now you're getting to the leverage point. And what happens is when you reach that leverage point, the counterweight in the crane itself cannot support the load and it causes it to tip. It's similar to a teeter-totter or someone on a, uh, we call them seesaws when I was a kid, that you put a big heavy kid on one side and a small kid on the other side, well, there was not much seesawing going on because the heavy kid kept the little kid in the air. But when you, if you could move that that fulcrum or that uh, board one way or the other, you could change the outcome. So you'd always want to keep it where the heavy kid was on the on one end to make a crane safe. So if you can understand that, it's the same thing as the the scales, the balance scales of uh, when you you see the uh, you put a, a certain amount of load on one side and you put a certain amount of load on the other side, it will balance. But if you put one too much load on one end or one side, it's going to cause it to tip, and that's what causes your tipping failures. Okay. Yeah, we're on the mobile crane, so just to give the audience an overview as far as what is a mobile crane, what do all mobile cranes have in common? Okay, to be classified as a mobile crane, it has to have some way to be to maneuver around the job site to travel. Uh, you have the different types of uh, uh, mobility you have are tracks, which are uh, lengths of, of tracks that uh, the crane rolls on or, or moves on. They're kind of a link or a network of pads and links that cause, as they rotate, cause the crane to be able to maneuver. But the most common uh, types that we see today are uh, what we call uh, rubber tire, RT, and these are these are kind of divided into two different groups now. You have what we call the rough terrain, which are designed mostly to be just used on the job site, just moved around, and, and the characteristic of those is they usually have the real deep lug tires on them, so they're more for mud and, and different aspects like that that you can get around the job site, but they're not uh, something that you would drive down the highway. So then you have the, the other type is what we call the all-terrain, which typically come with tires on them that look more like the ones that you see on the big 18-wheelers, that they can actually drive them up and down the highways, plus bring them onto job sites. But when you bring them on the job sites, you usually have to have a series of matting or whatever, some type of support to keep them out of the mud because they are not really good for 
traveling through the mud. Okay. Okay, so you have the carriers, different types of carriers, and what else do you have that's common with all mobile cranes? Well, all mobile cranes have a boom. A boom? Yeah, and these are actually divided in, as I said earlier, two different types of booms that you could you could have, and then they're even subdivided into more uh, complex processes, but the, the, the main two main uh, types are the, the lattice boom cranes, and the hydraulic or the uh, uh, extendable hydraulic type solid boom cranes. Thanks, Doug. So before we wrap up on this first incident, and then we'll move to the second one, and we'll ask some of the same questions, do some compare and contrast with the crane types. Anything else from the picture from the Amazon construction site incident? If you were getting involved with that investigation or you came on site and just initial gleaning through the picture of anything that you well it's very hard to you know to get a real close look at this since it's a aerial view but uh, you know as i said the first thing i would be checking is what caused the boom to fall to start with i mean that's, that's it's obvious it failed what caused it to fail i don't know and so that would typically when the boom is supported in the air it is supported by pendant lines, which are wire rope in, in most cases. So uh, the only way these could fail with the catastrophic failures we have here, there had to be something to break. And it, you know, my first thing is let me look at the pendant lines and see if was there some kind of damage. And this brings up an interesting point about, you know, we talk a little bit about wire rope, but all cranes have that's another thing that's similar. They all have wire rope. They'll have a hoisting mechanism, a superstructure that that and they use wire rope to the the hoist, either from the main hoist or the or the auxiliary hoist. Actually, yes, you're absolutely correct, and that's one of the things that we really have to be. You have to really be uh, careful with, is in, especially in your inspection, is because uh, the wire rope is so susceptible to damage, either by electrical contact contacting power lines, lightning, or welding. And typically on a weld on a work site you have you could have all three of these at there that you have to be cautious of. And to understand that any any damage to the wire rope, any of the wire rope, they're all that's all structural components. So if you have any damage to that wire rope, it could lead to a, another catastrophic failure. So great segue into the talking about uh, electrical hazards. Let's move on to the second uh, photo that we've given you there. And again, this one is from a crane. Uh, unfortunately, it's a crane fatality that happened in, uh, I believe it was Malibu, California. And as you can see from the picture, it involves electrical lines. And same thing, you don't, we don't have a whole lot of additional information, but we're still going to ask you some questions around it, Doug. So like we did with the other, with the lattice boom crane that we just talked about, what do you see there? What type of uh, crane do you see in the, in the picture? Well, this is a, would be a all-terrain crane because obviously when you look at the first thing I looked at is the tires and it's, they look just like regular uh 18-wheeler tires, big truck tires. So that means it's it's was traveling on the road. Uh, the uh, the second thing and the most glaring thing that I see is the outriggers are not extended. 
So I'm, I'm kind to in this, we're just looking at this photograph. I can't tell for sure if this crane was traveling down the road when it something happened, caused it to overturn, or if it was lifting something in what we call on rubber. Uh, when you lift it on rubber, there's a special chart that has to be used, and uh, some cranes will not allow you to lift on rubber. That means you're sitting on your on the tires of the crane and not on the outriggers. So uh, the, one of the advantages of these type cranes is its ability to actually move around the job site carrying loads. Where on the crawler type we talked earlier about, they typically don't carry loads when they're you know moving around the job site. But uh, this appears that whatever caused this upset of this crane, and it appears that it was a this would be considered a tipping incident because it, it tipped over. It's stability, yes. Yeah, I think you're right. Again, going by the picture, because it's we're going to transition into the electrical line hazards here in just a moment, but it's also next to a roadway and looked like there's a slope change there. So, yeah, this, this one could be related to inst instability. In, in a news report, it talks about the, the rescue personnel had to wait until the lines were de-energized before they went and, and recovered the person or, 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 or attempted to rescue the person. Now, can you talk a little bit about that? Why, um, how fatalities occur associated with power line contacts? Why is it important to make sure that all the lines are de-energized when there, there is a power line contact before you approach the crane and that sort of thing? Right. Well, yeah, the uh, the thing is about power lines is you, you, you never know for sure when a power line goes down if it's still energized or not. The only way you can actually know is have the utility folks come out and actually let you tell you. It may appear to be uh, what we call dead or not active, but it could be. Also, you have to be real careful around power lines with cranes or any other thing is because some of them have uh, a trip mechanism on them where they will uh, maybe if something contacts the line, it may trip the breaker and then re-energize and then it'll trip back. You, you may have noticed this at your home when your lights, you may be sitting there and your lights will blink go off you know and then they'll come back on and then they'll blink again they may do this three times or four times or some number of times and then they will go off and stay off and what this is designed to do is to allow if something minute like a small animal or a, a, a piece of a tree limb or something gets on the line it will actually it may de-energize it just for a, a small amount of time and then re-energize and if everything's clear then everything's good. They won't have to send utility workers out to check it or whatever, because if it just went out and blinked out one time and went off, then somebody would have to go out and reset it. So they're reset, activated, uh, and they're set on different amounts. So you, you really don't know for sure when the electricity's off or not activated until the, the uh, electrical company comes out and verifies it. Now, <clears throat> the, the thing is that if the when you make contact with a power line and you're the operator, you are very safe if you stay on the piece of equipment uh, because what happens, you become a at the same potential as the line. Where you have the problem of maybe death is if you try to get off 
the machine. And then once your foot touches the ground and you're still in contact with the machine, now you've made a circuit and you, you are now uh, could be electrocuted. Uh, the, and I use the analogy when I'm teaching that, you know, little birds sit on power lines all the time, but they just sit on one, one of the lines at a time. So you're, you're just like that little bird sitting on a line. And you also have to understand people can't approach this crane whenever it is uh, contacting the power line for the simple reason that when the energy goes into the crane, it goes out through the ground. And uh, I use the analogy of throwing a rock into the water, into a pond or whatever, and you have the ripples that go out. Well, that's the same way the electrical energy does. And each one of those ripples is the same as a power line. Anytime you broach two of those at the same time, you're now touching two wires. And so you could actually be electrocuted just by approaching the crane uh, and without even touching it. Each ripple has, is at a different voltage potential. So when you have that difference of voltage, that's when electricity can flow through through a person. That's right. Right. That's right. Okay. So it's, you know, anytime you, you go up to a crane or whatever, anything that's, you know, in contact with an electrical circuit, you need to make sure that it's, it's off. Let's talk about uh, how do you prevent, well, I mean, what, are there regulations and standards as far as working around overhead power lines? Yes, uh, OSHA, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, along with the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, both have uh, charts and uh, directions on how to work around overhead power lines. And they're both based on a 50,000 volt uh, number. Uh, 50,000 volts is a, is less than what comes into, uh, more than what comes into your house, but it's typically what goes down the high lines on, on a typical street. Uh, so they have certain distances uh, set up that says you do not get this any closer than this. And if you need to get closer to the power line than it, I believe it's 20 feet. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't look that up for sure, but there is a certain distance. And if you need to get within that distance, there is a formula that you can use once you verify from the power line company what that voltage is. So there is some, some ways that you can do some calculations to know how close you can actually get to that power line and still be safe. But there is a litany of things that you must do to be able to get within that distance. And, you know, to name a few, it's, you know, you may have to put insulating sleeves on. You may have to do different things like that. So there's a, a litany of things that has to be done. So you really need to stay away. But the most important thing is if you need to work around overhead power lines, if all possible, get them de-energized. And uh, you know, I always tell people, don't just take someone's word that it's de-energized, prove it. And the way you prove it is you go find the grounds where they, the actual electric company has put grounds on the lines to, to make sure that's, that you are protected. It's great, great guidance. 
Okay, so let's uh, continue. Last but not least, and the third incident that we want to talk about in the picture that we've given Doug here in the studio, this one made national news. I suspect anyone that's familiar, familiar with uh, cranes saw this one on TV that happened this year or on the Internet, or, or if you haven't, go, go look at it as, and, and compare it to some of the stuff that we are talking through today. So our third incident uh, happened in New York City at a high-rise building uh, construction. So, Doug, why don't you describe for the, uh, the the tower crane that you've got a picture of and what you uh, teach us a little bit more about this third type of crane. Okay, th this is what we call a tower crane because it is actually on a tower. It allows the crane to be above the where the work is being done below. Uh, you see these typically in uh, cities where they're building these large or tall buildings, but they're actually now being used a lot more on actual construction sites because of their ability to reach great distances where the uh, footprint of the crane has to be maintained in a very small area. So it allows them to build the crane in a small area, but the main part of the crane, it could be 100 or 200 or 300 feet in the air. Uh, this particular crane that we're looking at, again, there, there's different types of tire cranes. This is what we call a luffing tire uh, crane because it really looks like a conventional lattice boom crane which has the ability to boom up and down to change the radiuses of where the load will be set. Uh, and what is occurring here is there is a fire. And again, uh, what caused the fire? It could be many things that could cause this to uh, catch fire. You could have a, it could be a electrical short uh, around some of the you know, it, it, cranes are, uh, they have to have oil and grease and things. All of those are combust highly combustible uh, materials. So any type of fire you have on a crane is could be very intense very shortly because of the amount of, of ready fuel there for them. Uh, what, it could also be a maintenance issue or it could have been something like maybe one of the brakes failures or something overheating or whatever. Uh, it had to be something that caused a uh, failure of the suspension system. Again, like that in the first video, the boom does not fall because it's supported by wire ropes. So this fire <coughs> had to do something to damage either the uh, braking system for the boom that holds the wire rope that, you know, it's a uh, winching system. And it either is that that caused this event, uh, but something had to cause the event to allow these uh, wire ropes to fail to allow the boom to fall. So this would fall into the probably not instability, but some type of maybe something leading up to structural Failure. Exactly. Yeah, tower cranes, their failure is a structural failure, right? Yes. It's, there's no, not a stability failure. It's anchored to the ground. Right, right. So it, it's, it can't be a tipping failure there. It's, it's going to, it's, it's, something will break or it won't fall. 
Anything else on this incident from the picture, Jerome, anything that you wanted to touch on before we, uh, we're going to cycle back and do a wrap up and talk about root common root causes. And then that'll be a wrap. Just real quick. There's one other type of construction crane. You talked about operating a derrick before. Can you describe to the audience exactly what a derrick is and how that's different than a tire crane and mobile crane? Okay. A derrick crane is more of a uh, fixed object. Uh, it's attached to a structure similar to a tire crane, so you you do not have any tipping issues with with derricks. Derricks are usually uh, we call them stiff leg derricks or whatever. They're they're basically just a boom with a winching system that raises and lowers it, and also you have uh, some that have slew lines that allows it to swing. Uh, but typically, the uh, derrick can only swing a certain number of degrees because it can't do 360 like a regular mobile crane can because once it gets to a certain point, you got to stop and go back the other way uh, because of the, the dynamics of it. And, and so you see this a lot uh, in uh, building of a large structure that's going to be uh, use heavy materials, uh, for, for loading, but there's also uh, some of the small derricks that you see that you really don't consider derricks, and we actually subdivided some of those into a winch truck with a frame winch truck is actually a derrick, but they're not covered under the SME B30.6 derrick standard. They're they're set aside, but in essence, they are a derrick. Same way with a side boom tractor. A typical side boom tractor is a derrick that's movable. You can actually move it around same way with a winch truck. Well, it's typically it's a derrick, but again, ASME has separated those out and make put those under ASME B30.14, which are derrick, or, which are side boom tractors. Spear and Lancaster is an expert safety, process safety, and industrial hygiene consulting firm dedicated to helping organizations increase profits through the use of risk management and incident prevention techniques. Just like with today's podcast on construction type cranes, we have training that's available, we have experts that are available to help with crane safety and we can also help with the times where there may be incident investigation support needed uh, give us a call and one of our experts can give you the assistance that you need very informative a lot of a lot of stuff to pack in in 30 minutes as we as we wrap up uh, doug and jerome all, all three of us what so we, we've talked about three incidents and then you're 40 plus years of from operating and training what what are uh, for the audience so they can work on preventing these type of incidents what are some common cause categories root causes of if 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 a company does this well related to mobile cranes construction cranes it'll help prevent events like this what what comes to mind doug uh, three or four takeaways well, the first thing is, is training. Uh, they really, training cannot be, uh, I can't stress training enough, but along with training, there has to be a certain amount of skill sets to go along with it. 
you can you know book train someone to death, but if they don't have the skill sets required to actually carry out the job, uh, then you can have issues. We've had, and I've been exposed to uh, people that's very knowledgeable, but they make mistakes, and those are typically what things that you have to try to guard against is someone didn't expect something to happen. And when you're dealing with cranes, you always have to be on guard for that unexpected event. And so that's where the not only the training comes in, but the experience and the knowledge and the and the actual skill sets required to be able to do uh, the things that you have to do when you operate in a crane. Because you have to understand, when you're operating a crane and doing it correctly, you're actually doing maybe one to two to three functions at the same time. You could be swinging the load, booming the load up or down, and also hoisting up or down on the load at the same time. So you, you can't be in that one mindset you have to be looking and, and understanding all three things. Uh, that's one of the, the main things I see is there's people that's very knowledgeable in the uh, what goes on, but they lack those skill sets and the training aspect that goes along with it. So I, that's one of the things that we did at CBI, my tenure there, was not only did we pack the knowledge, try to pack the knowledge into their brain, but we also tried to make sure we'd go out and and see if we could help them uh, better develop their skill sets. Okay. What so, about, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Aside from training, what are some other things that you see as far as common causes of, of, of crane-related accidents? Well, as I said earlier, I think it's, it's someone not expecting something that I didn't know that could happen syndrome uh, and not – you know, paying close attention. The other thing that I see that's probably uh, one of the major root causes is improper or poor maintenance and improper or poor inspections. Taking the inspection checklist, which you're required to do, and just what I call pencil whipping it, just checking off everything is good and never actually looking to make sure that it's good. Okay, what about lift planning, Doug? What, what, what's a takeaway or two of... A complex lift or something that's routine, does it make a difference in your experience? And, and where does lift planning as one last takeaway for us? Okay, lift planning is probably the, one of the keys that has to be done. All lifts must be planned. To the extent of that planning is based on what your philosophy is as a company. Uh, most companies establish something like 50% of the crane's capacity at a given radius or boom length or whatever. That's where you draw the line and say, okay, everything from here on, we're going to actually write it down and do a formal lift plan. The other thing about lift planning is it's not only the, about the, the weight of the load that you have to consider. It's also about the value of the load. There are some things that are uh, irreplaceable maybe. And so some of those may be very light, but if you damage them in, in the lift, you know, cause a, a problem with crane failure or whatever that causes them to be damaged, it could uh, actually uh, be something that would set back for years and years uh, what's going on. So lift planning is very, very important. Well, Doug, that's a lot in 30 minutes. We appreciate you. I think we're gonna have to have you back again. <laughs> 
to join us and share because there's a lot of different directions we can go on this and and uh, with all the great growth construction things that are happening across the United States and, and the world you see cranes used all the time and your uh, knowledge and experience is invaluable. So we appreciate you uh, joining us today. One last, uh, if you would remind the audience, we went over it quickly, but what's you're on what committee and what other standards are available to help our audience uh, explore more around cranes? Okay, I've actually been sitting on the ASME, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers B30 Safety Codes and Standards for the past 25 plus years. Uh, I've been past chairman of the B30.6, uh, which is Derek's, B30.14, which is side boom, tra side boom tractors, yes, uh, B30.7, which is winches, and B30.26 is rigging hardwares. So I've been involved with all of the uh, ASME B30 standards that's out there today, and they range everywhere from uh, lifting loads with helicopters to moving loads with industrial jacks and rollers. So we have, it's a vast amount of uh, information there. I also was a part of the CDAC committee that uh, OSHA put together for the crane regulations. I was actually not part of the crane part, but they, I was a uh, contributor to the Derrick section of that uh, process. So, Well, thanks again, Doug. Appreciate you joining us. And on behalf of Jerome and myself, uh, Jeremy, this is Jeremy. Uh, thank you all for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your week. According to his power that is at work.